Welcome to Theories of Evolution, a podcast about exploring the lessons we learn on life's journeys from simply being to fully becoming. I'm your host, Shannon Stewart, and I'm excited to have you with me as we, well, talk through some stuff. Hopefully we'll have a few laughs along the way because, hey, we all know life can simultaneously be messy and funny. Let's do this. Content warning. This episode contains discussion around suicide, both attempts and ideation. So if this topic is triggering for you, we invite you to join us for our next episode. October 10th of each year is World Mental Health Day, and as someone who works in the mental health space and is learning more about it kind of every day, um, I want to spend some time, as much as we can on this podcast, talking about mental health, talking about mental illness, and bringing people's kind of real experiences to light so pe- to help kind of destigmatize mental health and mental illness. And there is a difference. It's subtle, but there is a difference. Um, and one of those uh, people that I've, I'm delighted to have join me today is my friend, Melissa Tellick. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Super excited to have you here today. So thank you for um, volunteering to kind of tell your story and to talk through what your experience has been like with me. I know that this is something that's relatively new to you. And so I extra appreciate you taking the time and kind of, I can imagine this is a vulnerable moment. And so I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that and to say thank you again. And um, to say that there's probably a great chance that other people we'll be talking to or who will be listening today will probably resonate very strongly with some of what we're going to talk about. So um, enough about me, (laughs) let's talk (laughs) about you. So uh, I think the easiest way to kind of get started is for you to start wherever you think your, your beginning is and how you'd like to tell your story. So why don't we, I'll just turn it over to you and we'll go from there. Oh gosh, that's a complicated question, I think, with a complicated answer. (laughs) Uh, For me, my mental health struggles in general have existed almost all of my memorable life. They started when I was quite young. Uh, I would say, I think I was probably 11 or 12 when my parents started trying to contact health professionals for assistance because it was out of their realm as well and they knew something was up but no one really knew what it was and because I was so young it was difficult to figure out I was going through the joys of hormones (laughs) new hormones at the same time so that didn't really aid in figuring it all out Uh, and I went through a period of many diagnoses where they tried to figure things out and I was a bit of a lab rat Mm -hmm. and uh I would say things got pretty serious when I I think I was 18 it was right before I went away to university and I was finally given the diagnosis that one of the diagnoses that has stayed with me and that is bipolar one okay Uh, so that has been pretty consistently that's been the biggest hill to uh to climb I think was is the the bipolar one uh journey mm-hmm. um so yeah I was about 18 or 19 and in long story short I would say that I haven't really been stable since uh, since then until about a year ago was mm-hmm. when 
I really experienced what stability was for me. And it, it was like being born and living a new life again. So can you take us back then to, excuse me, to what maybe what, what 18 and 19, like what that looked like, what that time in your life was like, how, um, how things were presenting themselves, what kind of some of your symptoms were those kind of things. Yeah, so I had, depression was always something that I had struggled with and was pretty evident to anyone who knew me pretty well. Mm. Uh, But when I was 18 and just kind of getting ready to go to university, and then especially in September when I started university, uh, I experienced probably the, the... most manic that I had ever been at that point. Mm -hmm. So looking back, I had had probably little experiences with hypomania. And then when I went away to university, I'm sure it was the pressure of university being away from home. I started to experience massive swings upward. And I I wasn't sleeping. I was staying. I think there was one period where I stayed up 72 hours straight and then I slept for 30 minutes and did it all again. Uh, And I was drinking and spending and doing all of the things that the books say will happen when you have a manic episode. And then it all really culminated in uh, hallucinations beginning. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having to uh, come home in November. Uh, So it was very short time that I was away from home before I had to come back and really get some serious help. And that was the first time that I had had some pretty uh, intensive treatment. So when you talk about bipolar one, can you give people kind of a little bit of a description? Because I know that there are different types of bipolar and yeah. what the kind of the main differentiators are just for people who may not be aware. And then obviously what it used to be referred to that people may know <laughs> a bit yeah, more. Yes. So it's most, uh, in, when you watch movies, people will call it manic depression. Right. And uh, really in its simplest form, bipolar disorder is uh, a series of ups and downs. So really, really high highs and really low lows. And with bipolar two, you'll experience, uh, from what I understand, depression, fairly deep depression, but the highs don't do, don't go quite as high mm. and may just be something that they refer to as hypermania, where you have the heightened feelings and the highs, but you're not engaging in quite as risky behavior. You're not experiencing something called psychosis. Mm. And then with bipolar one, you'll have those ups and down ranges again, but they tend to be a, the lows are still pretty low, but the highs go very high. And often are connected with psychotic features. And as soon as you experience any kind of psychotic feature, which could be hallucinations, delusions, uh, hearing voices, some some forms of paranoia, I think, fall into that as well, uh, you'll be classified as bipolar one. Okay. Uh, 
That's super helpful. That's, that really helps kind of break it down. And I think so many people, they're, they're understanding bipolar now more because we're talking about it a little more. But as you said, you'll still mm-hmm. see a lot of it being referred to as manic depressive. Or you'll have, you know, the worst where someone's like, oh, I started up this morning and, you know, now I'm feeling sad and I'm, I'm so bipolar today, which is just ridiculous yeah. when people toss around that kind <laughs> of those things. Like, you know, <laughs> but anyway, that's my my tangent and my rant. I can only oh, imagine. Yeah. That's a bit of a for me as well. I as bet. You can I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Words matter, people. Words matter. Don't say stuff like that. Um, so, okay. So you go away to university, you have these incredibly manic moments. Um, I can't even imagine 72 hours. I can't usually go like 20 hours without sleep. That's a huge stretch <laughs> for me. So I can't imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, what 72 looks like, but so you end up home in November and mm-hmm. what, what comes next? Uh, I saw my family doctor, which is (laughs) kind of a double-edged sword because it's great that I had uh, a primary care physician to speak to about it, Mm -hmm. but I think he was also a bit out of his element in how to deal with it because it wasn't, it, it was seemed more extreme than kind of he had been used to dealing with in practice. Sure. So initially he referred me to the uh, psychiatrist within his practice who kind of got the ball rolling mm-hmm. and started me on uh, medication. And honestly, the medication is probably what pushed me into quite a manic state huh. because I had initially seen him uh, uh, because I hadn't really connected that it was mania. I thought it was still symptoms of depression, Mm. which sounds very strange to mix up a high and a low, but I knew that I wasn't, I knew that I was being, I was acting differently than my peers. And I knew that I had had a history of depression and I thought, well, this is just how it looks when I'm alone out Mm. of the house for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I went back to him and I said, you know, something's going on. It's, uh, I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I'm spending all my money. Mm. I don't know what to do. And they put me on an SSRI, Mm -hmm. which uh, for anyone who uh, doesn't know with bipolar disorder is probably the worst vacation (laughs) you can be put on. Uh, It's, it's, as far as I know, as I've been told through various treatment through the years now, that they really try to avoid uh, SSRIs to treat depression, bipolar depression, mm-hmm. because it can trigger a mania. Oh. So that beginning in SSRI was actually what triggered a psychotic episode for me. Well, isn't that fun? You know, yeah. like you think you're moving in the right direction. And if, if memory serves, let's see if I can get the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor is what SSRI yes. stands Sorry. for. Yes. Gold star for me. Yeah, I know because they also work in migraines sometimes. So that's yeah. kind of what my experience has been with SSRIs. It's funny, it's funny how much medication crossover there is <clears throat> yeah. that um, the medication that I take now is often used to treat epilepsy. And that seemed to be really common uh, 
a common theme when I start a medication. They say, oh, well, we use, this is usually for epilepsy. We've seen some success. So oh, yeah. let's try it. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> it's interesting what things developed to treat one thing might treat something that seems totally unrelated. Absolutely. So you, you start taking this SSRI and this is, you know, from, you know, working with your family doctor who refers you to the psychiatrist in his practice. So, I mean, this isn't just, you know, someone kind of going off the side of a desk. This is, you know, you're working with the people that you think make the most sense to be giving you solid advice. And so you start taking this medication and then from the sounds of it, bad things happened. Yeah, Mm. it, it did. So I, I experienced a psychotic episode and I've had a few now, so I, I'm trying to think back uh, to what the original <laughs> experience was. But um, I, the first stage for me, usually when I am moving into a psychotic episode, is that I do start to hear voices. Mm. So I started hearing uh, it, it. The way, the best way that I described it to my doctor was that when it first started happening, it was as if I was in a crowd and someone far behind me was that I hadn't seen yet, had seen me and was reaching, trying to call out to me hmm. to get me to acknowledge that they were there. So I would be in class, I'd be in the hallway and I'd hear people talking to me from kind of a distance. Um, and I'd stop and look around expecting someone that I knew to be there looking for me and there wasn't anyone. Uh, so it was unsettling, but I just okay. thought, you know, sometimes you think yep. someone is there and they're not. And that happens to everybody. Sure. Uh, and then I was starting to hear uh, almost like an old timey radio. This is a terrible description, but it was, it was like an old timey radio in my head all the time in the background, like that kind of crackly Mm -hmm. voices that I was uh, really struggling to understand what the voices were saying, but I knew that they were talking to me. They were saying something and I knew that it was not occurring anywhere around me. And it was pretty, it was pretty scary. How incredibly frightening. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think common for that, the age that I was 18, that uh, way at university first time, really struggling, having this independence I'd never really had before. Then this scary thing started happening. The best thing that I could think of to do was to start partying. And uh, I would drink until I didn't know what was going on. And I would just avoid any situation where things could be louder and Mm. I would hear them. So anytime I was alone and I knew that no one else was there and I could hear it was especially scary. So I just tried to be in large areas all the time. That seems like a perfectly rational coping mechanism, you know, like to try to, (laughs) no, I I totally get it. I would totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find that like, I'm, and I'm just curious, like, so if you started drinking more, did that change? Like did alcohol change would you potentially hear more or less? Would it turn it down or turn it up? Or did it not really matter? For me, it did turn it down. Mm. But I think probably not so much in the moment, just in my ability to remember it. 
because oh, sure. I was drinking so much that I didn't yeah. really remember what what was going on around me at all anyway. Mm. So if I couldn't remember who I was out with, then I definitely wasn't going to remember what what strange, had happened. Yeah, how it felt. Yeah, strange voices were saying. To yeah, me. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I started to uh, feel like I was followed, oh. like I was being followed. I was seeing kind of. I call him the shadow man mm-hmm. uh, where the same way that it feels like someone in the crowd is calling your name behind you. It feels like someone up, someone is coming up behind you or coming up in front of you and you see their shadow, but then they never appear. And uh, that for me was terrifying. I really had no idea what was going on. Mm. And I ignored that until uh, inevitably what goes up has to come down. Mm. And I crashed into probably one of the deepest uh, depressions that I had experienced up until that point Um, that ended up, it was actually the, the depression and the, I did end up attempting to take my life mm-hmm. and that was what that was what landed me into the hospital. So I went through at that point a kind of in the same way that the that the illness has a cycle the uh, the treatment had a cycle as well. So I would I would experience depression and then I would experience the high. And then when the high crashed, I was so low that that's when I was seeking medical intervention. Hmm. So, and I didn't know enough to explain what, what those highs and lows were like, what those peaks were like. So when I was coming in and uh, telling the doctor that something was wrong, all they were hearing about was very deep depression and they weren't hearing about the highs that happened right before that to uh to get me there mm-hmm. wow and so yeah I can't I uh, wow I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and try to kind of think that through and think kind of how scary that must have felt and at, at the same time, I mean, you're at school, you're walking around a campus potentially that's new to you. And I'm sure there are other people that can very easily be like, yeah, somebody's following me, uh, you know, like, but yeah. then, but then to actually have to keep telling yourself, no, actually it, like, it must be such a frightening moment to get to that point where you, you, you flip from, this is normal. This is a human, especially as a woman <laughs> alone walking somewhere yeah. to, you know, this is a normal reaction to wait a minute, this isn't normal and something is requiring intervention or assistance, especially if you're in a manic state at the same time. Like I can, I, I, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that point I hadn't, I never really realized until looking back that that wasn't real. Mm. So I knew that the calling out was strange and there wasn't anyone there and the radio mm-hmm sounds were strange but seeing the the shadow and feeling like I was followed I never connected at that point in time that it wasn't actually happening oof 
And so once, once you went, as you said, what goes up must come down. So you had this the long kind of the depression episode. Was this once you had returned home, like post coming back from school or was this while you were still at school or? Uh, no, that was still while I was at school. Mm-hmm. So I, I started to experience some hypomania. Uh, that was what, uh, in November I went in thinking, to the doctor thinking something was up and they said, oh, we'll take this SSRI, <sighs> even though it was a manic state, which I then took that, that pushed me much higher. Mm. By the time I came home in April, was it was the summer that I really crashed into mm. a depression. Okay. So I, I lived my first year in residence at university in a really terrifying state feeling like I was being followed the whole time. My goodness. Uh, really from probably Christmas time until April when I wrote my last exam. Hmm. Amazing that you made it. You actually kind of got through the year. <laughs> well, that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> my grades might not say I got through the year. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. So um, you mentioned hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of form did that take? And, you know, you're finally kind of talking about this, this deep depression and that started getting some traction. So I'm assuming by this point, had they taken you off the SSRI or were you, were they still like, no, no, you're good. Everything's fine. No, I was still taking oh, an SSRI God. until the summer. Uh, and that was, it was actually my third, uh, attempt at that point so I had had two attempts in high school and one was when I was so young that they they were like normally we would hospitalize someone but we can't put her on a ward she's just I think I was 13 I Mm. was really really young so it was kind of a let's treat her let's treat the medical effects from the attempt occurring and then hope that we can just address everything outside of the office because we just don't, there's nowhere to put a 13 year old who's like, we could put her in the children's hospital, but she's not going to fit there. There's not going to be the kind of controls and lockdown situation that we would normally do with someone struggling with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I had another right before I went to university (laughs) which probably should have been a big indicator that it was not a good time for me to go to university, Mm -hmm. uh, where it was the same kind of thing. I was taken into the hospital by ambulance. The medical effects of uh, what I had done were treated, but none of the mental health aspect was. Once, Once I was deemed physically well, I was released and told to go see my doctor. And I think you've that was that. you've hit on some one of the biggest kind of disconnects in our system and why there's so much I mean, outcry is probably not even a strong enough word now, but as people are talking more about mental health and mental illness and and all of these areas and how disjointed the system is and how impossible it is to navigate. Yeah. Um, especially and- for the patient, you know, who's you're trying to deal with everything that's going on in your mind at that moment. And wow. Yeah. And you just don't know where to turn. Like right. you're, you're struggling so much. I was so young that all of the world was a mystery anyway. And then to add this thing in that none of my peers seem to be experiencing, like mm. 
I think I made a comment once about wanting to not be alive or having trouble getting out of bed and all of the girls that I was friends with in high school were like I don't have that and then I knew to never mention it again (sighs) so it like I knew that it was a different situation then or that it it was just slightly different than what my peers seemed to be dealing with whether or not that was just because they weren't talking about it sure or because they weren't I don't know that I will ever know yeah um but I I really didn't I didn't I didn't know who to talk to I didn't it was a time where 13 year olds I didn't I wasn't really confiding in my mom not because she had done anything wrong but because I was a 13 year old girl (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> trying to just navigate all the things of being 13, let alone yeah. dealing with you yeah. know, not yeah. knowing what's going on. And then to see a doctor and just basically feel like I'm in a loop mm-hmm. all the time where this happens, I go to the doctor, they change my medication in some way. Um, for a long time, it was just that they were changing my dosage. It wasn't even that they were changing my medication. So... I think um, at one point I was taking, uh, is t- mentioning names of medications okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no we can. Okay. Yes. No, so, uh, <laughs> we're not endorsing or we're not sponsored by any of these yeah, medications or pharmaceutical no, companies, and, so we're fine. And I don't yeah. want to make it sound like something doesn't work. Uh, something that didn't work for me might work for someone else. So exactly. Knows, it's but, one of the big challenges with medications and mental health is... It's a lot of times, and I'm sure, I mean, your story is exactly this. It's lived uh, of, it's trying to figure things out over time and you use your best guess and you hope for the best. And when that doesn't work, you move on to the next. The challenge being, of course, that so many times you, you take these drugs and they actually have the capacity to make things worse before they get better. Yeah. And because I was so young, the options were limited as well because Mm. there uh, were so many, um, it was still kind of, I'm not that old, but it was still (laughs) kind of just a period where people were even addressing that depression was a thing and people were seeking treatment without being really, really significantly ill Mm -hmm. that you could get an antidepressant at your from your family physician. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I first saw them, they were like, we don't know what to give a 13 year old girl. Like, Mm. We don't know what, nothing's been tested. Nothing probably will be tested in a very long time. So we're going to put you on Prozac because that's, that's what we know. That's the, that's what we put everyone on initially. And then as things were getting worse, instead of someone saying, maybe Prozac is not the medication for (laughs) this girl, they just kept upping and upping and upping my dose. And at one point, I was taking like 450 milligrams over over the maximum dose for an adult woman and still not having any success. Oh my goodness. And it wasn't until my mom actually uh, said to the doctor, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. She's, it's not helping and she's just she's feeling worse. And then the addition of all of these medications that aren't this pile of medications every day that isn't fixing it is not helping our situation at home either. So we, we have to figure out something else. Yeah. And 
when that happened, it kind of right aligned with uh, that uh, significant psychotic episode Mm -hmm. in the summer after my first year of university. And the response was, well, we're not going to take you off of Prozac, but we're going to add an antipsychotic into the mix as well. So, (laughs) yeah, so sometimes it really feels like um, you can't even tell if you're getting better because some of the side effects from the medications are so volatile that mm-hmm. um, you either don't know or it doesn't matter because you're so sick from that that you can't keep on it or like it's just it really is just a crap <laughs> exactly and it takes so long right like they say oh you have to what is it what do they normally say like kind of six to eight weeks before you'll really know if it works and yeah meanwhile yeah. like just it trying is, to kind it's of function a long period when you're really in the trenches mm-hmm. of it yeah it's interesting so there's a lot of work being done in the area it's called pharmacogenetics which is basically to try to do some better understanding um, from each individual patient to get an idea of based on your kind of genetic profile or your unique kind of signature, if you will, which drugs have a better chance of working for you. So mm-hmm. instead of just playing, you know, we start at A and if A doesn't work, we go to B and, you know, you, you have to go all the way to W before you find something that works. Imagine and if then you circle back. Let's exactly. Back A again. <laughs> Imagine if you were able to just go straight to A because you know, your signature profile says that that's what's probably going to work best for you. Like, just imagine if you could have avoided all of that. It could, it it would have been life-changing for me, honestly, because so much of my story is just playing around with medication and Mm -hmm. what I took and how much of it I took. And uh, I think at the, at probably one of the worst sets of time in my life, periods of time in my life, I was taking 14 different medications and 28 different pills. What? For those, like of those 14 medications. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't truly physically could not give it to myself because I couldn't sort that amount of medication. Mm. So for, at that, that point I was married. So in the beginning, like the my husband would go to the pharmacy and get like a toe of medication and spend every Sunday night sorting it for me so that I could take it. And then he got to the point where he was like, this is, I have a job. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, this is taking hours. And then the pharmacy did it for me and I was getting uh, dose sets delivered weekly mm-hmm. by the pharmacy because they had had to sort it because there were just so many. And at that point, even so all of those medications you were on, how are you feeling? Did you feel like you had reached some semblance of stability to use your kind of word from earlier or were you just, were you in a fog? Were you, <laughs> what was that like? Yeah. Um, I never felt better. Mm. Uh, I I would have times where it didn't feel quite as deep mm-hmm. a depression. And I definitely had periods where they were able to uh, manage the manic, the mania symptoms. So I wasn't experiencing psychosis. I wasn't experiencing exceptionally high highs. But the depression never went away. Mm. And uh, I had... Some periods where I would feel flat, where 
people in my life would be telling me great things that happened to them and I wouldn't be able to react because mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't muster what happiness or excitement felt like everything was just so flat but in the midst of that I would still get depression so it was like flat 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 depressed flat 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 and it wasn't I wasn't getting that peak high mm-hmm. but I I was just experiencing nothing and then everything all at once mm. and really crashing. Wow. So, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that you're married and that uh, you have a husband and you also have two adorable, by the way, children. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm yeah. biased, but I think that they're pretty adorable. Yeah. So uh, what is the, yes. what is, how has that all been for you? And yeah. And uh, again, that's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah. It's been having a partner, particularly my partner Mm -hmm. as a match for me, Mm -hmm. has been phenomenal. He Mm -hmm. is truly, truly my match in everything. Mm -hmm. And the areas I'm lacking are the areas he excels at. And he just balances me so well. Um, But he's also very, very caring and patient and... uh, really took on the role as my advocate for Mm. a period of time that I wasn't able to be my own advocate. And like, how, Uh, how old were you when you met him? Like where, when did he come into your life? Oh, so (laughs) uh, we met when I was 19. So kind of right at the midst of all of this. Uh, really being a bit of a new mystery, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the change happening in what I had been experiencing. And uh, I mean, love is powerful. So I, I met him, I fell in love. And I felt like for a period of time that that was the cure for me. Like Mm -hmm. that was just what Mm -hmm. had been missing. Mm -hmm. And I still experienced lows and I still experienced some flatness and I still I took medication every day um none of that ever changed he knew fairly early on that I had a mental health diagnosis and was surprisingly unfazed like (laughs) um when I said to him I have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder it was like telling him I was a blonde yeah and like yeah, I dyed my okay. hair yeah like <laughs> yeah. I I see that who cares like yeah. it, it was just it was not my experience mm-hmm. of it, it was not what I had been experiencing with other people sure. when I found out yeah um especially because I had psychotic features it is when that happens it's a thing that really turns people away Mm. from you unless Mm. they're really already being your advocate yeah um yeah so we met when I was 19 we were married uh he's he's a bit younger than I am we were married when he was 21 and I was 23 and then we so quite pretty young young, (laughs) and then we had my oldest, a little girl, uh, that next year. So mm-hmm. she's 11, she's 12 now. What am I saying? <laughs> Terrible mother. She's 12. Um, yeah. And 
that's a bit of an interesting component in mental health as well, because at the time, there was a really great emphasis on watching the signs for postpartum depression, and these are the things to look for, and everyone was really talking about, mm-hmm. about it. And because I had a history and I was on medication, where I live, there's a really great program called the Women's Health Concern Clinic, and they specifically deal with mental health related to women. Awesome. Uh, particularly related to hormones and uh, and pregnancy. So I was transferred immediately into uh, care at that clinic. And I it was great. I had a great doctor there. They watched me very carefully. But uh, because so much of the emphasis is on postpartum depression or yeah it's postpartum depression and that had been depression had been my more difficult struggle to tackle Mm -hmm. that had been most of our focus and uh no one was really prepared or expected that I would have something called postpartum psychosis oh uh so you take it up a notch yeah Mm. yeah which looking back of course I did. (laughs) Like it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everyone in my life, including me, was spending all of my energy looking for the signs of depression that didn't come because I, I wasn't depressed. I, I then experienced postpartum psychosis. So uh, when my daughter was, I was still on maternity leave. Um, I was starting to experience paranoia. I was, I remember the moment that made me realize things weren't okay and I needed to ask for help. My husband traveled quite a bit for work and uh, I was constantly terrified that someone was after us and someone Mm. was going to come into our house. And there was one particular night that I was so terrified. I was convinced that someone was breaking into the house uh, that I took my daughter and I hid in a closet and I slept. Mm. Well, I didn't sleep, but (laughs) she slept being held in the dark on the floor in the closet. And it wasn't until I don't even know how much time passed that I thought this is, I need help. This, Mm -hmm. this isn't clearly no one was breaking in because here I am still in the closet. Uh, And that was when I, I went to the mental health concerns, my doctor there and said, look, this is what happened. I don't think this is depression. Mm -hmm. And, and I was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis at that point. So at any of this time, has your medication changed? Are you like trying different things kind of because I, I, I admit I'm not on the up and up with kind of medication during pregnancy and all of those sort of things, right? So, I, and, and the extra stresses and strains of just being pregnant in the first place that are, again, for, ev- for everyone in every kind of facet of life, right? Mm-hmm. Adding to your, your burden, for lack of a better kind of term. So, yeah, I was on medication the entire pregnancy, which mm-hmm. I know is sometimes controversial, uh, but I, I do truly think that I, like, I, I can't have any period of time where yeah. I'm not on 
yeah. something mm-hmm. uh, because I will just, I will be unable to function. Sure. It is just not, it's not a question for me. So yeah. we did the, I did have to switch medications that mm. I was on. Okay. Um, and I did have to go off of, at that point, uh, by that point, I was experiencing uh, a lot of medication switches. So mm-hmm. I would be on something for six to eight weeks, wasn't having mm-hmm. the desired effect, and they would change the dose or add something or take that away and put something else in. So I was really still kind of in that lab rat right. stage. Yeah. Um, and so I did remain on medication while I was pregnant. Um, we didn't change things after she was born. The intention initially had been, I, I wasn't on an antipsychotic while I was pregnant because that is one of the things that is not recommended. Sure. So I stayed on an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she was born and I didn't get depressed, the the mentality was... Oh, the medication's can, working. Yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't touch anything. Yeah. Because this is clearly working right uh and it wasn't until afterwards that we were like well one of them was working right the pretty major one I wasn't taking conspicuous by its absence and then yeah and exactly what it was supposed to prevent right happened so uh then I was added back onto it and so for your second pregnancy then were you able to kind of lesson learned was it is it different like how did things go that time so that was yes they <laughs> they did treat it differently I was still being followed at the women's health concerns clinic I had the same doctor so great continuity of care mm-hmm. uh they did have to change some of the doses again mm-hmm. uh so one of the differences between uh, my kids that I think set up the medication choices is that uh, my daughter was not planned, <laughs> okay. but my son was. Okay. So I actually was going to the Women's Health Concerns Clinic about six months before I got pregnant because I knew that that was on the horizon for us. So mm-hmm. we wanted to be really established. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be on something that I had been on for a period of time that wasn't going to have to change, and that really did make a difference like awesome. to not have to adjust those things yeah. when you're newly pregnant is great mm-hmm. uh but then I had some added health issues mm-hmm. re- with that pregnancy uh with the my son's pregnancy that um probably added to my mood issues I mm-hmm. tend to not deal with change particularly well even mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. a, as a fairly st- in a at a fairly stable point uh I I still tend to have a like zero to a hundred kind of sure brain so any kind of health problem felt like the world exacerbated was right so yeah. it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster when that with that pregnancy in general. And then once he was born, those, uh, his health problems continued, mm-hmm. which uh, I also had a hard time dealing with. I, sure. 
which is it's it yeah feels, it Human. feels awful <laughs> to say no but <laughs> that you know I just I wasn't dealing with it well and it wasn't so much that I was I wasn't upset I mean I'm upset that he was having health issues but it was more that I felt so overwhelmed sure I was my sleep was affected again because mm-hmm. he was sick mm-hmm. in the night and I was back to work I'd gone mm. back to work by this point and I uh I found out what while I was on maternity leave that my position had become redundant so I was dealing with a sick baby job searching then I started a new job right from my maternity leave and was training in a new job while also trying to manage doctor's appointments and specialists and trying not to be the terrible new employee who's on the phone four phone calls a day with a doctor and I was just feeling like I was failing everyone Mm. and I ended up having a fairly big depressive crash and that was in 2012 and um it was the most difficult to treat in Mm -hmm. my history of of mental illness I think uh it was the fallout from from that particular episode in 2012 really set me off course Mm. in treatment and it was like starting again it was it was really difficult um and at that so from 2012 uh I was in and out of the hospital again Mm. uh sometimes for as long as a month Mm -hmm. that I was in a locked ward because Mm. I was so ill so unstable and uh I think between 2012 and and now I have had four hospitalizations and it has really all stemmed from that one thing that set me off course and then was really difficult to recover from to to manage and regain my footing wow and meanwhile, you've got two kids and, you know, this, and you have to, what's the saying, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? So that concept of having to take care of yourself and make sure that you're kind of putting yourself at the center to get to a place where you need to be for yourself yeah. and for everybody else. Yeah. And, and the hard part in that circumstance and from the people I've spoken to in treatment that have experienced mental health as well the that's the hardest part because so much of what is going on in that moment is that you feel like you're such a burden Mm. you feel like everyone's life would be better off if you weren't there contributing to making things more difficult for them Mm. so it's really hard to step back and take that time to acknowledge that you need some self-care when all you can think about is that you are affecting everyone around you that was all I was thinking about I was thinking about my kids having to grow up with a mom who was unstable and my husband is stuck with this partner who's unstable and I 
my friends were stuck with someone who was unstable. And it just, I was a bad employee. I was a bad mom. I was a bad wife. I was a bad friend. And nothing I could do could change my mindset Mm. in that time. So I think that that's a pretty common element Mm -hmm. uh, when people are struggling with mental health, regardless of whether it's a depressive episode, a high, um, you're a bit bit less self-aware when you're (laughs) having a high, but, um, but that is all really heightened how much, how much you as one person are influencing what is happening. Well, and when you just turn that glare inwards, right? And when you just, you take everything outside and you're like kind of shining mirrors back at yourself, it just, you know, kind of amplifies the light source. That's a terrible metaphor, but you know what I mean? I have a vision yeah, of some weird yeah. superhero thing with all these mirrors shooting light everywhere. But <laughs> <laughs> like it, when it all reflects back on you, in addition to everything else you're trying to deal with and process and your own kind of biochemistry that's kind of working against you, trying to kind of get to a place where you can try to come to a narrative where you are, you know, worth all of these people and everything that's in your circle. And yeah, I can't even imagine that must be challenging. Yeah, it, it was hard. And um, it sounds dramatic to say, but it all really did culminate again in another attempt to take my life. Mm-hmm. So to step back now and say, oh my God, I had everything. Like mm-hmm. I had a husband who loved me and was fighting. I had these two kids that needed me. i I was doing all of these things to think that I could do that. It's so, it's so easy for people to say that it is selfish, but at the moment it feels like you are making the biggest sacrifice that you are making the most unselfish decision you've ever made Hmm. to take, to do this so that you are not a burden anymore. And uh, when that happened, uh honestly, you have to thank a leak at the YMCA probably for me even being here today <laughs> because wow. um, I my husband had gone out with a friend to play squash or tennis or something at the YMCA and I uh, I thought this was the time I did everything that I mm. had planned to do. Uh, thought I was putting my kids in a safe place, uh, laid down. And my husband called to say, I'm coming home sooner because we got to the gym and there was a leak. And I said to him, well, I won't be here when you get back. And I don't remember anything after that. Um, He rushed home. His friend was with Mm -hmm. him. They called an ambulance. I was taken to the hospital. I needed medical intervention. Mm-hmm. His friend was there, luckily, to stay with our, our children who were asleep when it all happened. Um, and then I was admitted to a locked ward at that point, and I was there. I, that was that was the time that I was there for a, a just over a month, I think, mm-hmm. was, was how long I was there. So... That wow. thank that YMCA every day for <laughs> having a leak because Amazing, eh? who wow. knows what the outcome would have been if that leak hadn't sent him home sooner. Wow, so, wow, yeah, so it was, much. <sighs> it was 
a dark time. Yeah. For, not just for me, for our family. It was it was difficult for everyone to deal with. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I mean, I know we're still talking about stuff, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that because I can imagine that's a, that's a deeply personal kind of experience, but I think it really sheds so much light to those who haven't kind of walked the proverbial mile in your shoes about how it feels because as you said so many people think it's and you know cam h is doing all this work around not suicide not today and kind of the concept of 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 what that looks like and trying to destigmatize the 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 notion that suicide is selfish and the the words around suicide and i think you really um did kind of an exquisite job in just explaining what it feels like from the other side and oh well thank you i I never know how much to share because I don't I don't want to make people uncomfortable I also don't want to be triggering for someone who's having sure. a hard time but I do I do I, I I'm starting to realize the importance of talking about what you're feeling when that happens and that it does happen and what the fallout from that is like and even when I was uh I very clearly remember the first doctor that I saw uh inpatient. So when I was in the ER being treated, none of the medical staff were friendly to me. They all treated me like I was awful. A nuisance. All that did was reinforce that Mm -hmm. I was awful. I was right. (sighs) And now not only was I awful, but I was a failure for not succeeding. And the first doctor that I saw said to me, as someone who deals with mental health, you think you'd realize what mental health problems you'd be setting your own kids up for if you had a parent who died by suicide. Oh, And it was probably the absolute worst thing anyone could have said to me (laughs) at that time (laughs) because I just didn't know whether I was coming or going at that point. Like, I'm just sitting here with what? my mouth wide open. I can't even <laughs> begin to imagine in what universe they thought that was the right thing to say. Yeah, like, it was it oof. was it was a terrible terrible experience and I realized that it from the outside looking in it is a different experience, but I felt like for the first period of time after that happened, no one had any compassion mm. for for me, that sounds so self-absorbed. Like, I mean, you were the person in crisis. Had you been there and had you broken a leg, someone would have shown you <laughs> compassion for the fact that you broke your leg, even if you did it doing something stupid. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? That's like, true. And right? It, it's just, it, it, I think that made being in the mind space to accept recovery very difficult. Sure. Uh, because it really did just confirm all of the feelings that I had in my brain that were telling me I was worthless, I was a failure, I was a burden. And now all of these people who were not having compassion for what had happened, telling me how awful my husband looks sobbing in the waiting room because he thought that I wasn't going to survive. Like it just how that was, it wasn't helpful. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't, I guess. it wasn't putting wow. me in the mind space to say, you're right. This could be something that maybe some treatment could just. Yeah. Don't worry, friend. I'll try harder next time. Like what, what do you, yeah. what kind of a response it were was, they expecting? It, it really did make me think this is why people don't ask for help. Sure. Because this is, 
if the response is, well, it's selfish, it's think about what your kid's life will be like if you were successful. And those are important things to think about Mm -hmm. for sure. But I don't know if that moment was (laughs) the time to address how important those things were. Wow. So after that, you said you spent a month um, as an inpatient. And then, you know, when we were talking a little bit before, you said that you feel uh, that you're, you've kind of had some level of kind of stability for the past year. So what happened in the intervening years to bring you to where you are today? So I have a fantastic medical team behind me. Again, I think finally all the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a incredibly supportive family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when things were really particularly bad in 2012, uh, my parents, uh, my mom and my husband's mom basically took over helping to keep our house running mm-hmm. and helping care to care for the kids. And uh, we ended up making the decision to amalgamate homes. So my mother-in-law and my father-in-law uh, live with us. And for the period that that when that first happened, it was very, very necessary and mm-hmm. very helpful to just know that there was backup. Nice. There was someone else to help carry the load if it sure. was getting difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I think what really made the difference for me is uh, I decided to do ECT about a year ago, uh, which is electroconvulsive therapy, which uh, mm-hmm. is another fairly misunderstood treatment, I think. Right. When you think about ECT, you think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or all of those terrifying 50s movies where people are brain damaged and never the same person. So, uh, when I was still really having trouble with stability and feeling like I was doing all of the right things, I was seeing a doctor and I was med compliant and I was going to every class that they told me to take. I did CBT, I did DBT, Mm -hmm. I worked on anxiety, I worked on depression, I worked on sleep. Like I did everything that they told me to try. I was like, let's just throw this spaghetti at the wall and yep. see what sticks. I'm I in. do I'm in. anything. <laughs> yep. And when my doctor suggested ECT, uh, I really had a moment where I thought, do they still do that? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. No, but it's true. Yeah. It was, it was overwhelming mm-hmm. to, to have them say like, you know, you're right. We have tried everything at this point and let's try a different approach. It, and it really was a, this might help. It might not, but we have to weigh the options and decide if we're going to do that. So my doctor put it totally in my court about whether I would elect to do it or not. It is, they would never put someone uh, who was in a form one situation, which is where you are involuntarily being held in the hospital. Right. right. Um, you would always voluntarily participate in an ECT program. As, as far as I was informed, that was 
that's what they do now. Mm -hmm. And we really thought about it. And my family was really divided. I have to say, I I didn't really know what to do. I'm a researcher, so I started reading everything Mm -hmm. possible, which in some ways was helpful and in other ways... Terrifying. Worst thing to do. Uh, My husband was very on board like from day one Mm -hmm. he was at the appointment when the doctor talked about why he thought this was the thing to do and my husband was like we got to do it like this is just it's a chance it's a shot it's a chance it's it's one more thing you've done everything else you've been working so hard Mm -hmm. just go for it what what could go wrong kind of mentality (laughs) (laughs) um but my mom, for example, who is from a different time period, was very adamant that she did not want me to uh, to elect to do this treatment. She thought it was really dangerous. Uh, she was she was not on board yeah. at first, which really, it was a long discussion yeah. for everybody uh, whether to do it. And partly because it's also a really long commitment, which I didn't, I didn't know because I knew nothing. I mm-hmm. didn't think they even did it anymore. Sure. Um, but it's, it's done in a controlled setting. Mm-hmm. So I was admitted to the hospital every single time I had ECT. I was put under general anesthetic. Yep. And they did the treatment while I was under general. And then I recovered in a recovery room. Went home, did the recovery at home, lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah. And I And how did, often, sorry, Melissa, how often did you have to go? Like how how frequently were the treatments? So initially the intention was uh, to go three times a week, but I found it to, the recovery period in between sessions, I needed a full day to recover. So sure. I was recovering and then going back in and I was just not functioning. Yeah. So we knocked it back to twice a week. So there was a short period of time where I went three times a week. Uh, For the majority, I I went two times a week under full general anesthetic in the hospital every morning. This is a commitment. Like it's a it's, commitment, and it's a commitment for other people in your life because someone has to take you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> has to sit there and yeah. wait while you're uh, like they, you can't drive yourself home after nope. general anesthetic. And uh, I couldn't actually drive at all during ECT. That's not the case for everybody, but mm. I was not. I didn't feel comfortable based on uh, how difficult the recovery was for me. So the whole process for me, I did 12 straight weeks, two times a week. Wow. Uh, yeah. It that's was a, a lot long, of anesthetic. Like, it was a long time. Yeah. But. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have to say, I didn't feel the effects right away. I thought sure. that it hadn't worked at mm-hmm. first. Um, so I started in February of 2019. I end of February was my first session. Mm-hmm. I did. I finished in May. Um, and I don't think it was. It was probably November of 2019 that it was almost as if I woke up one day and the fog had lifted in a way that I had truly, truly never experienced. I had the colors of the world were mm. different. It it sounds so dramatic, but it really 
it really was like that, that I, I started to experience emotions that I had never been able to experience before and a motivation that I hadn't experienced before. It had been such a long battle, like 13 to well, 34 mm. was when I did the, the treatment and like over half of my life, that's how I lived. I didn't know anything else. And it, it was like, waking up one day and just being a new person. Wow. Now, did you, did you question it ever? Were you like, oh, is this like, I'm just so curious, like this feels amazing, but now are you worried that it's potentially the beginning of another kind of manic period or did it just feel different? Absolutely. I was very terrified Mm -hmm. of that and they kept a very close eye in the beginning and I did experience a hypomanic episode after I completed. So I think in, I think it was a full year later. So February mm-hmm. of 2019. Am I doing them? I'm, of 2020, if it was a, Yeah, 2020 must yeah. have been. I did have a slight hypomania, but I was in such a better place yeah. that I was able to notice it right away, catch it right away. All of my medical team knew that that was a potential side effect. So Mm -hmm. everyone was looking for it and we were pretty prepared to combat it. And we kind of nipped it in the bud before it it became anything more significant. And uh, we were quite worried because um, when I started ECT, the medication that I was on uh, was a medication for epilepsy, which I mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. of our conversation is pretty common. Um, but uh, basically what how ECT works, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, mm-hmm. is that they put you under general anesthetic and then they uh, trigger an epileptic seizure um, using electromagnetic frequency, I, I guess, mm-hmm. is the best way to put it and uh no one really knows why that works but it's like a defibrillator for the brain right it changes the rhythm like it just resets it all and um so when I first started the treatment they don't want they don't really want to change anything so I went in taking all of my usual medications I did two treatments and in neither of them they they weren't able to induce a seizure Mm -hmm. in either appointment. And it was determined that that was likely because I was taking anti-seizure medication. medication. (laughs) So I had to make a pretty difficult choice to go cold turkey off of the medication that I had been taking for, I think, two years at that point. Um, So that was scary to like, go cold turkey and not be taking any medication for 12 weeks meant that I was watched very, very Mm. carefully Mm -hmm. um, because no one knew what, no one knows what that could do. So um, yeah, so I did 12 weeks. I was not taking any medication. As soon as I went off the uh, anti-seizure medication, they were able to induce the seizure. (laughs) Shogging. Fancy that. Um, yeah. yeah, I did. I think I did 24 sessions all in all. Um, I've been 
told that it's likely I will have to uh, do, they call them maintenance sessions. Sure. So um, they said sometimes it's every year, sometimes it's every two years. And they really just kind of play that, play that by ear. And you wouldn't go through the full 12 week, 24 like a, sessions. They like a boost or something, like a booster. Yeah, just a little booster. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I went back on medication yeah. uh, almost immediately when mm-hmm. uh, treatment was completed. And here are. I am living a much different life than I have ever experienced before. That's amazing. Now, I know. One of the side effects that sometimes they talk about is that there can be some memory loss and other things like that. I'm 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 curious as to whether that's something that you've experienced or not. Mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> that was my biggest concern going sure. in. Uh, I read online that that was. You hear awful stories about people who do ECT and then don't know who they are anymore. Mm. And I thought, oh Oof. my gosh, what if I do this and it even if it works, but I, I'm done it. And I don't know who my kids are. I don't know who my husband is. I don't remember birth dates. I don't remember. It was, it was really, really terrifying to think about. And, uh, I did not experience that. So what I was told is that the, uh, the areas that ECT targets do, affect memory, but not already established memories. Right. So during ECT, I did not form any memories. <laughs> and you're like, I'm okay with that. I'm kind of yeah. okay with that. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of it, I don't know if I do remember pieces of it or if I just know because my family was there and told me and now sure. I've formed that like it was my memory. Mm-hmm. But there, we still will laugh because there's every once in a while something comes up where someone is like, oh, well, remember, remember when this happened? Like we, our water heater apparently broke while I was in the middle of ECT and we had a flood and someone had to come and repair it. And uh, I made a comment the other day about like, oh, well, we have to make sure that we budget in our furnace, in our budget for uh, the water heater to be eventually be replaced. And my husband was like, been there, done no, that. We that we did that a year ago, and I was like, "No, I think you're wrong. We didn't." And it just was that it happened. I just did not form a yeah. memory about yeah. it. <laughs> um, and, and so, so since was, yeah, wow. So since yeah. then, you're you've you've gone through all the ECT. You're back on your medication, and so it has that kind of feeling of colors and kind of living life again and actually experiencing emotion. Is that kind of generally your? day to day now or there's still some kind of variabilities in terms of ups and downs or has it basically it's held uh it is the majority of time uh I have not had a manic episode since 2000 and like a not medically induced one Mm -hmm. I think it was 2016 and then I had the small hypomanic episode Mm -hmm. following the ECT but have had nothing since then I've had some periods of I hate even to call it depression because it, compared to what I was experiencing <laughs> this ain't no thing <laughs> it, it's like 
it's just a low mood. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, you're living would still qualify as clinical depression. <laughs> but you're also living in the middle of a pandemic, you know. So like, there's yeah. all of that. So I mean, I think strangely, one thing that's been interesting to me about the pandemic is people who've never experienced like bona fide, as you would say, kind of levels of depression or anxiety, are starting to get an idea of what that feels like. And theirs are much more transient because it is, you know, this this will go away. But there are other people that are kind of getting into places where they're reaching that kind of level of clinical depression, never having experienced it before. So yeah. What's the pandemic been like? Yeah. Kind of funny. Uh, in, in response to the pandemic is that when it first happened, I truly felt like I was the best I had ever been. Mm. I, everyone around me was talking about what a hard time they were having. And I was like, this is what I've been waiting for not a pandemic, but living, <laughs> picking up my groceries yeah. at the, at the drive-in and not having to go into the store and only having excuses to only socialize with the people that I chose to be in my bubble. This is, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I've been training for this since I was 13. <laughs> Put me in coach. And, yeah. yeah. And I actually felt really guilty because mm. you were, I was seeing so much on social media about check on your friends, check on people who have had mental mm. health issues. And I thought that it must be triggering the start of a, a manic episode because mm. I was doing so well. Mm. And I mentioned it to my doctor and he said, you know, we'll keep an eye on it, but I don't think it is. And honestly, I would say over half of my patients who have had significant mental health struggles at a similar level to you are saying the same thing. Yeah. That, and I don't, I don't know if maybe it's just because some of the pressures that exist outside of my house didn't exist anymore. And I was just able to focus on your bubble, on my bubble and making sure that everything was stable there without Mm. much, much thought about being a good employee Mm. and uh, Things like that. Mm-hmm. So it, I had quite the opposite response to what... I feel like I should say, you know, it's about time. I feel like it's about time that you got a bit of a break. <laughs> so I'm totally okay with that. If the pandemic cut you some slack, I'm down. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I did teach teach all of us in my house what, what our priorities were and yeah. what they should be going forward. Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. So now you... You continue with your medication. Things are, you've got, as you said, this kind of level of stability. You keep checking in with your awesome medical team and you go for some some boosters or something if you potentially need them. Have you had any conversations about TMS? Have they talked to you about TMS as a like transmagnetic, yes. transmagnetic cranial so stimulation? Yeah. When they suggested ECT, they suggested one of them yep. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they told me that it was my choice to do one or the other or neither. That ECT is and, more successful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I did some research and uh, decided that even though it was a bit riskier because some of my uh, issues had been so long-term, mm-hmm. ECT seemed to show uh, statistically that it was a bit more successful with people who had had medication resistant or very chronic issues. So that was my 
that was my reason for choosing ECT over TMS, but I was given the choice. Mm -hmm. And it'd be interesting to see if down the road, if that's, if you could potentially move to TMS. And again, I'm, I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but just my only thought behind that is because you don't have to go under general anesthetic, right? So it kind of removes. And and that was something that was mentioned that choosing one doesn't mean you're stuck with that one forever. And there's that. Yeah. And there's so much research that's being done on TMS now to potentially bring it up. So it could be an interesting kind of opportunity for you. But I'm so glad that uh, that ECT has kind of has given you, I was going to say your life back, but I mean, it's given you life, right? Yeah, it's true. I feel so overdramatic when I say it, but it really, it really is something that I have never truly experienced Mm -hmm. before. Like I'm sure as a child I did, but this has been such a long, long mm-hmm. time that I really did think that that it was going to be my life and that it was a live with it or it's going to be the thing that kills you. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't see an Light. opportunity yeah. for that to change. So it was, I'm very, very pleasantly <laughs> surprised. Um, and trying to live it as best that I can. Um, It does leave me in a spot where I am much more worried about a crash or Mm. a high than I was before, mostly because it was just life. It was expected. But I worry now that if I experienced a low, it would feel much lower Mm. just because I've, had this stability or if I had experienced a high it would be much more unmanageable because I've I've had this stability but um I try not to worry too much about that because then I'm still letting this illness dictate my life and I worked so hard Mm -hmm. to battle it and to be a part of my family in the way that I am now mm-hmm. that I just, it's a cross that bridge. If we come to it kind of yep. scenario, I have a great medical team, so they'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. And it really, it is what it is. And I yeah. just, I have to try to not focus on that portion. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. It's, that's been quite a, kind of trajectory and as you said like a lifelong all of your basically your formative years and memories of trying to get to a place of what you know as you describe kind of stability and to be enjoying life and I really want to thank you for sharing that Um, we're going to have your Instagram handle as we like to do in uh, the show notes for today in case if you're listening and this sounds familiar to you or if you're worried about someone in your circle or if you have questions about electroconvulsive therapy, kind of what it's like, Melissa has very kindly offered to uh, to answer questions that anyone may have, um, kind of having come through the other side of this, which um, I just want to take, the, again, uh, the opportunity to say thank you for, for telling your story and to being so open and to kind of walking us through what these decades really of your life have been like and looked like. And I am so, so happy for you and for your family and for your kids and for everyone who's been there with you every step of the way that you've all kind of walked through this 
um, hopefully for it to continued success and, and happiness and sunshine and rainbows and red carpets <laughs> and all of those fun things that we like to do and watch, right? So um, thank you again, Melissa, for sharing uh, your story. As you said, we wish you continued to get sex. Success. Sorry. Well, <laughs> hey, good sex. Why not? Uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, so thanks everyone for listening. Again, reach out to Melissa or to me if you have any questions um, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Theories of Evolution. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Check out the show notes for resources that may be of interest and I'd love it if you could drop a review on your podcatcher of choice. There's always more to say and so much more evolving to do. So if you have ideas for future episodes or would like to join me to share your own theories, reach out. Email me at evolutionpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on the socials. Evolution Podcast on Insta, at evolutionpod on Twitter, or Theories of Evolution on Facebook. And don't forget that's Shan, S-H-A-N, because I simply find it impossible to resist a good play on words. That's all for now. May we both be a few steps further ahead next time we connect. From today to tomorrow, never stop evolving.